Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 205, Introducing the Crusades. Welcome back everyone, I hope you're doing okay. The First Crusade is one of the most extraordinary stories in human history. So as you can imagine, it's not been an easy process to work out how to talk about it. I've been buried beneath a gigantic reading list since our last episode, and I emerge now as I begin the process of trying to do this topic justice. I've decided to keep things moving by just starting. Starting to talk about the Crusades and all the different elements that went into them, rather than spending longer away from the microphone trying to carve these episodes into the most aesthetically pleasing shapes. So, over the next few installments, I'm going to try and take you through the process that led up to the Crusades. I'm going to pose a series of questions and take an episode to answer each one. As a result, these episodes may be quite different lengths to one another, but hopefully they will all answer the major questions as best we can answer them about what happened and why. Today, I just want to talk about a couple of conceptual points about the Crusades, which will be far more interesting than that sentence sounds, I promise. I want to talk about how the outcome of an event can change the way we perceive its origins, and how histories are then written to fit the new reality that the outcome has created. Often I have to cut these discussions out of the podcast to keep the narrative on track, but since the Crusades are so massive that we've had to stop anyway, I thought you'd enjoy the extra detail. To make sure we're all on the same page, I'm going to have to spoil the entire story for you now in the next 60 seconds. Apologies in advance. So when we were last with Alexius, it was the summer of 1095, when he was shepherding Cuman raiders out of the Balkans. The following summer, 1096, tens of thousands of Western Europeans set out on the road to Constantinople. They were there to help the Byzantines, but their ultimate goal was Jerusalem. These crusaders were responding to a recruitment campaign led by Pope Urban II, urging them to make the journey to Jerusalem in order to free the holy places and the Eastern Church from Muslim domination. 
Alexius had certainly sent messages asking for help, but whether he'd imagined an army of this size is still up for debate. The emperor ferried this mass of humanity over to Anatolia, where they helped recapture Nicaea and Antioch. Until they reached Antioch, the crusaders were led and fed by the Byzantine authorities. But the two sides fell out when it seemed that the siege of Antioch was about to fail. The crusaders succeeded in taking the city at the last moment and felt betrayed by the absence of Byzantine aid. The crusaders now had to make decisions amongst themselves and agreed to continue south to Jerusalem. Against considerable odds, they managed to remain united and capture the holy city. This was an amazing story. For an army to march 3,000 miles to reach its target was rare enough, but to do so as a volunteer force, moved largely by religious devotion, well, that was surely unprecedented in the Mediterranean world. The question I want to ask today is, what if the First Crusade had failed? What if the siege of Jerusalem had ended not with the capture of the city, but with the crusaders being dumped into mass graves? Would history have continued along the same course, with waves of new crusades being launched to get it done this time? Or would the whole endeavour have been forgotten, written off as the madness of one pope, and left to merely be the subject of obscure podcasts or lists of ten events from history that you've probably never heard of. I'm not just bringing this up because it's a fun counterfactual, it's because it's central to understanding how all of our sources portray the Crusades. As soon as the Latins unfurled their blood-stained banners over Jerusalem's battlements, the whole campaign gained a narrative purpose that is quite rare in the rest of history. To take a familiar example, remember Basil II's campaigns against the Bulgarians. We all know that Basil put an end to the Bulgarian state based in Ohrid, and in the process killed and blinded some people. But we don't actually know a huge amount more than that. And when you throw in the fact that Basil lost his first campaign against them, and then fought in Bulgaria every year for decades, and didn't spend much time at the capital sponsoring art, a narrative begins to form. Basil was bent on revenge. The embittered emperor grimly abandoned the luxuries of the palace and spent every year hunting his white whale in the mountains of Macedonia. And only when he'd blinded 15,000 prisoners could his lust for revenge be sated and the Bulgarians brought to their knees. It's a good story, but as we discussed at length, probably not what happened. We face a similar dilemma with the Crusades, but from a different perspective. Here we have a dozen written histories providing all the rich details that are missing from Basil's life. But they were all written in the afterglow of the capture of Jerusalem. Once the holy city was in Christian hands it was tempting to present the story as simply that. The Pope called for the city to be taken, and it was. The end. 
Now, what's wrong with that, you might ask? Step forward, Antony Caldellis. The so-called First Crusade presents itself in almost perfect narrative form. Its flawless pace and trajectory through beginning, middle and end betray the hand of a master dramatist. It is a deceptively easy story to tell, which is why it was retold so often in the years to come, but this spectacular singularity also makes it hard to integrate into its historical context, which is inevitably humdrum by comparison. Similar events that happened before are excluded when we label this the First Crusade. Moreover, the Crusade did not end with the conquest of Jerusalem. More waves continued to arrive, only they were far less spectacular in their accomplishments and have been played down accordingly. Historians have struggled to find the most relevant context for this story. Generally, they have settled on the religious, social, and martial landscape of northern Europe, from where most of the Crusaders came, rather than southern Europe, where some of them had been most active previously, or Byzantium, whose recent history and territories set the stage for most of its narrative trajectory, or the Muslim Near East, where it culminated. Professor Caldellis has been a guiding light for this podcast, but his warnings are echoed by many other historians. Their general point being that the Crusades are not just a story about one army capturing Jerusalem. They are instead an epic about the peoples of an entire continent coming together in cooperation and conflict at a very particular moment in history. Yet many historians, including those of today, have brushed entire chapters aside in order to focus on the drama of the so-called First Crusade. And you can understand why. Contemporaries were as wowed by the story as we are today. And the men who wrote the first histories of the capture of Jerusalem, understandably, wrote about that journey itself to the exclusion of everything else. It is the job of Anthony Caldellis and others, including me, to put that wider context back in place for you. But I want you to think about those first crusaders and those amongst them who wrote their story down on paper. It wasn't just for convenience's sake that they began to remove the Byzantines, the Muslims, and the papal reform movement from their stories. In many cases, it was genuine religious conviction that made them perceive other elements in the story to ultimately be irrelevant. Jerusalem is, of course, the place where Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection took place. As such, it was the most significant spot on earth for medieval Christians. And as I'm sure you know, it was thoughts of Jerusalem, not Manzikert that really moved Western knights to make this incredible journey. So once Jerusalem was successfully besieged, what would be a logical conclusion to draw if you were a Western Christian? Probably that God willed it, that it was God's plan all along, that God ordered the crusade and ensured its success. In a world where 
Everyone believed that there was an unseen power behind the mysteries of fate. In a world where the church was the internet, newspaper and library all in one, what other conclusion could you draw? Imagine now that you sit down to write a history of the First Crusade, where else are you going to start other than with God calling your protagonists to complete a special task for him? And where else are you going to end it other than with mission accomplished? How are you now going to remember the motives of your characters? How are you going to contextualize the setbacks suffered along the way? How are you going to describe those who stood in their way? Once the beginning and end of your story are set in a deeply significant religious context, your history can quickly turn into hagiography. In future episodes, we'll talk in detail about Pope Urban's preaching and what he said to get men to go on crusade. But as an example of how history can become distorted, here is a list of things that he did not say. That God is calling you to go to Jerusalem. That this is a new type of warfare called crusading. If you die during this journey, you will become a martyr and be guaranteed salvation. And you won't have to spend any time in purgatory. And you must convert non-Christians. And Muslims are our inveterate enemies. And you must create a new kingdom in Jerusalem. As far as we know, none of that was said. Yet most of it has come to be associated with the wider crusading movement. As we make our way through the crusading story we'll discover that time and again the narratives handed down by contemporary historians have been distorted significantly by the experience of success outside the walls of Jerusalem. And as you may have guessed, the Byzantine role in that success has been largely forgotten. As an aside, the way history has wrapped itself around the capture of Jerusalem, reminds me of nothing so much as the origins of Islam. If you'll recall, the generally accepted narrative of the formation of the caliphate had a similar ring to it. A religious leader gathers an army together and directs it to go out, conquering in God's name. In fact, Jerusalem was a major target of that expedition as well. The brave scholars who've engaged with Islam's origins make a basic point about that story. They don't doubt the sincerity of those who kept alive an oral tradition of Muhammad's life and work, but they point out that the staggering success the Arab armies achieved was naturally attributed to God's providence. And as we've just discussed, when you write history backwards from a religiously significant end point, what emerges tends to be a neat origin story that explains how we got from A to C in a smooth manner. This origin story is likely to take on religious contours itself and inevitably obliterates much of the actual historical context. The similarities with the origins of Islam are particularly relevant for this podcast – because in both cases, I am taking on the task of describing a major neighbour of the Byzantines, 
one who I know far less well. So I've called on some allies of my own to help me handle this gargantuan task. Sharon Eastor from the History of the Crusades podcast will be by to talk about the motivations of those who took the cross. While next episode, I'll begin sharing excerpts from an interview I conducted with Professor Peter Frankopan, author of the indispensable book, The First Crusade, The Call from the East. As with some other interviews I've done, we'll use the pieces relevant to where we are in the story, and then I'll release the whole thing as its own episode so you can hear the entire conversation. Next time, we'll return to Constantinople to talk about the call from the East. As you know, Alexius has been in the market for mercenaries for quite some time, but connections with the nobility of Western Europe actually go deeper than I've been letting on. In the meantime, if you're feeling deprived of good history chat, then you may be interested in a podcasting conference coming up in June. It's called Intelligent Speech and is being organised by our old friend Royfield Brown. The conference will, of course, be an entirely online affair, so you can tune in wherever you are in the world, and gathering together will be many of the best educational podcasters out there. I am taking part in a panel and also leading my own session on the hidden voices of Byzantium. All of this is taking place on Saturday, 27th of June. Check out intelligentspeechconference.com for more information. And early bird tickets can be grabbed right now for just $10. What a bargain. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.